Good morning, church. You'll have to excuse me. I was stricken with the, the flu, influenza A, on Christmas Eve. It was the quietest Christmas I could remember, actually, because nobody came near me. So that was uh, ultimately a blessing. <laughs> it gave me some time to heal. I uh, just uh, appreciate you guys being here. My name is Todd. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here today, and it brings me great joy to see you here every week. Welcome back, Leah. It's good to see you. And today we find ourselves in chapter 12 of Matthew, coming back off of our, our Christmas Advent playlist series, which, which was very edifying, and, and I was grateful for the opportunity to spend time in the Psalms, and it was, it was good for my soul just to just to go through that and just see the footprints of God all over that, see the Messiah written in every verse. So last week we, we picked up in Matthew, and we ended up with Jesus healing this man with the withered hand. And even after that, Jesus looks to be by himself for a couple minutes just to find time, but the crowds won't let him. They, they follow him. In, in the, the parallel passage, we see that Jesus even had the disciples prepare a boat for him so he could go off the shore so he wasn't pressed in on the crowds. But in the end, what Jesus does is what Jesus does. He stays and he heals them. And this is another example of the kingdom of heaven that's come with Christ, this example of the power of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus healing all these people that come to him. Another demonstration of Jesus' divinity, his healing of their sickness, his forgiveness of their sins. In every way, he has fulfilled the requirements of the promised anointed Messiah. And in every instance, we see this reaction of the Pharisees. They react to him, and in Matthew 12, 14, it says, they went away to conspire against him. And it specifically says, they plotted how they might kill him. And that's where we're at today, friends. The Pharisees are actively looking for ways to kill Jesus. They've decided that he cannot be allowed to continue his ministry. So let's open the word together to the book of Matthew, chapter 12. We'll be covering verses 22 to 32 today. We'll get started. I'll read it. We'll take a moment to thank the Lord, and then we'll unpack it together. So again, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22, begins this way. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you, Or how can someone enter a strongman's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strongman? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us, Lord. We pray for, for understanding. We pray that we would just have eyes open to see and ears to hear the truth of your message today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, friends, I've, I've drank the Kool-Aid. I signed up for Disney+. Plus. For me, it was Star Wars and Marvel. They're the big sell, but for Janelle, it's Baby Yoda. And although I admit he is super cute, it's really the MCU that I love. This idea of heroes and villains, superpowers, and that really speaks to us as people, this idea of these abilities. And uh, I think the MCU is a reflection of this, this world that we really want where there's this undercurrent of goodness and sacrifice and all these different things, and yet these people also can fly. That's pretty cool. So we soak up things about these supernatural lives, and if you look on Netflix or any of the others, there's just an a whole plethora of shows that we can choose from about people that have these supernatural powers because we just want it to be true. And even our search for extraterrestrials, we want to believe these aliens are going to be these benevolent beings that somehow have these magical abilities, these supernatural powers, and not just, not just aren't gross and smelly like they are in Independence Day. Even our desire... For for extraterrestrial life is, is about seeking out this, hopefully, some other planet where these abilities and, and other things exist, and hopefully they'll bring them to us, and it'll be in some kind of E.T. peaceful mission with some M&M pieces, Reese's pieces. But this natural idea of the natural and the supernatural merging is like even in X-Men, for example, this idea that they're not really aliens, they're more mutants, right? They're, they have these natural abilities and these supernatural abilities. It's again our desire to merge these two worlds, the supernatural with the natural. We want the supernatural in the natural. In the MCU, there's supernatural like Thor. Thor is supernatural. He's a god. He's a god among a bunch of other gods. We also have Hulk. The Hulk is, he's an aberration of the natural. Dr. Bruce Banner, stricken by gamma rays, turns into the Hulk. And he's pretty amazing. He crushes stuff. Hulk smash. And one of my favorite scenes comes in the Avengers where the Hulk is, is up on the top of Stark Tower, this this monument that Tony Stark, this reformed arms dealer, has made to himself. And, and Hulk is up there with this other god, Loki. And Loki, who really desires worship for himself, he desires people to supplicate themselves and believes that will bring order to their lives. He's up there. and The Hulk is irrational <laughs> and always angry. 
And Loki stops the action for a, for a moment and he, he looks at Hulk in one moment where he's just getting crushed. He's, he's still got this air about himself of arrogance, but at every turn he's been thwarted by these other people. And he stops the action for a second to tell the Hulk, enough, you are all beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature, and I will not be bullied. And if you remember the movie, we know what happens. The Hulk picks him up by the feet and crushes him repeatedly back and forth. And as he's walking away, he mutters, puny God. It's one of the best lines in the movie. And it's a good illustration to that for us today because our God is not a puny God. He demonstrates in this passage that he routinely and consistently demonstrates the power of God. Not like Loki, he doesn't command worship, he invites it. He doesn't compel submission, he inspires it. I wonder if the Pharisees were expecting a, or hoping for a Hulk god, one that smashes the Romans, somehow restores them, or maybe a Loki-type god, a god who would demand supplication and exhort himself, a fearsome god one who treats everybody equally bad and rules with fear and foreboding, which is how Loki would have ruled. But what came instead is our God, a God who humbled himself and came in the form of a baby, a God who invites us to worship him, who inspires us to submit to him. And this is the God we find in Matthew. Humility and service are the kingly attributes of our unexpected, long-expected king. Jesus is no puny God. He is the anointed one. And even as the Pharisees plot to kill him, they are plotting to ultimately fulfill God's plan. And it's not just the prophecy that we've read and heard about over the last few weeks of, of the returning king that needs to be fulfilled, but it is a suffering servant that is going to submit to go to the cross. This is the God that comes. The kind of God who could demand worship, who says even his armies would fight for him if he wanted to. He doesn't conquer even though he could. Instead, he serves, he heals, he restores. And in the second, we're going to read, and we've just read in Matthew 23, that the people ask, can this be the Messiah? And we can't answer that, yes, this is the son of David. He is the Messiah. Look with me at verses 22 and 30, 23. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. All the crowds were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? In verse 22, we learn that they've brought a man to Jesus that's blind and unable to speak. And in today's English version, it says this, a man who was blind and could not talk because he had a demon. This causal relationship is really important. It makes it clear that he isn't blind and he isn't mute and he doesn't have a demon. He's demon-possessed. This causes him to be blind and mute. This goes right to symptoms and causes. 
If someone had a brain tumor, it was causing the inability to see or talk, you wouldn't give them LASIK or operate on their vocal cords. Jesus knows that the man's illness is a problem with demon possession. And he gets right to the heart of the matter. He exercises the demon and he heals the man. The man's problem is a demon, but we've seen that demons are no problem for Jesus. Jesus is not a puny God. A couple things to note about this passage are it's brief. This is one of the briefest accounts of healing in the, in the book of Matthew. Basically says he's got this problem and Jesus heals him all in two verses. Which is great for expositional preachers. You spend a lot of time on that. So they brought this man to Jesus. The man, in this case, has a demon which has robbed him of his sight and his ability to speak. And many commentators think he would have probably also been deaf. But think about this for a second. Unable to see, unable to speak. Unable to tell anybody what you need. Unable to tell anybody what's wrong. Imagine how difficult that would be if the person couldn't tell you what the problem was. How would you know how to heal them if they couldn't tell you what their symptoms were? How would you know that their symptoms are demon possession if they couldn't tell you, before this, I did this? You probably know this frustration if you've been around children or you're a mom. Children who can't articulate what's wrong, often it's very frustrating when all they can tell you is that they hurt. How frustrating it is for those of us who want to give them relief, but can't. We don't know how to help them. Jesus knows how to help this man. He's not concerned with his blindness or his muteness because he knows his problem is his demon possession. And he heals him just that quick. He's got a spiritual problem that causes physical symptoms. And this is true in most of the healings of demon-possessed people. We see this throughout, that the demoniacs have this supernatural problem. And this is unlike some of the other healing accounts where we see that they've got physical problems. The woman with the problem of blood, for example. This guy's problem is that there is a demon, he's possessed him, and absent the demon, he would live a fairly normal life. And what the text doesn't say is how long he's been like this. It's mute on that, but however long it was, it was probably longer than it took Jesus just to reach out, remove this demon, and give him back his sight and his voice. The result is that the man spoke and saw. The demon's gone, his physical symptoms are gone too. He can see, he speaks, and we see from the crowd that they're amazed some texts say astonished or astounded, but the idea here is that the people are awestruck. That causes them to ask this question, can this be the son of David? By the son of David, they mean the Messiah. Can this be the Messiah? Can this be the one that we've heard about and the one that we're waiting for? And in the way that they ask the question in the Greek test, text, some commentators point out that they're not really asking so much as marveling. They're almost asking rhetorically. The Greek text is always full of lots of meaning, and we can often determine its tone. Sometimes it's rhetorical, sometimes it's mocking, sometimes it's incredulous. And in this question, 
they are asking in a way that opens the possibility. They're believing. This is the Messiah, Isaiah foretold, foretold of. And in Isaiah 29, we see this, 29:18, on that day the deaf will hear, and out of and the words of a document, and out of a deep darkness the eyes of the blind will see. And Isaiah 35 says this, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf, unst- deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is a sign of the Messiah coming as the blind will see, the mute will be given tongues that will sing for joy. It's hard to imagine it being any clearer Even the people, the crowds, can see that this man has the power of the Messiah. And they respond to it. The parallel passage in Mark 3.23 says that whenever unclean spirits saw him, they fell down and cried out, you are the Son of God. And we've seen in other passages with demoniacs crying out, you are the Son of God, also in Matthew 8.28. This is an example of the two demon-possessed men that wandered the graveyard cutting themselves so you see that the response to the demoniacs has been, you are the son of God, you are the son of David, and now the people are asking, is this the son of David? Yes. Yes, it probably is. He brings with them the kingdom of heaven, the power of the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees don't like this. The Pharisees also respond. Instead of acceptance and awestruck acceptance, they respond with rejection and slander. They accuse Jesus of being Beelzebul. This is the second time that the Pharisees have made this accusation, and it's a good idea to look back at this other instance. They made this accusation in chapter 9, and we went through that a couple months ago, and Jesus healed these two blind men and a mute man, and it says the crowd marveled. And this word for crowd, it means multitude, and it's, it's a singular word, a singular noun. And in this passage, and that'll be important in a second, and in this passage, in Matthew 9, what happens? The Pharisees tell the disciples, your teacher cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. So while Jesus heals and exercises and restores people, gives them back sight, gives them back tongues that will sing for joy, the Pharisees are like, he does it by the power of a demon. Probably kicking sand. Jesus. And they do it again here. It's kind of ridiculous. Jesus healing the people and muttering, well, he does it by the power of Satan. But that's what they do. What's, he, what's interesting is in this passage in Matthew 12, it doesn't just say crowd. The crowd in Matthew 9 is singular. The crowd in Matthew 12 is plural. So it's not just a crowd. It's a crowd of crowds. It's a multitude of multitudes. And I think what this means, if Matthew is getting at that this is actually a group of people, this is not just a single crowd amongst a crowd. This is a crowd of crowds. More people are coming to know this. And we see in this passage that more people are believing, more people are, this is what's angering the Pharisees, is that 
people, the crowd of crowds, the multitude of multitudes, all the people is what the ESV says. All the people ask, can this be the son of David? That's what's angering the Pharisees. That's why they want to kill him. The people are believing that's a problem. If Jesus is the Messiah, Messiah, went a little Boston there for a second, and has the power to forgive sins, then if you're a Pharisee, what use are you? Remember that part of the rabbi's living was interpreting the law and managing the sacrificial system. That's why they had the money changers in the temples. If Jesus is the Messiah and he is forgiving sins, they're out of business. Jesus is teaching the people about the one true God, who he is, and the people have responded with belief. Beelzebul literally means Lord of the flies, but the Pharisees are using this to mean Satan. And if we look back into the Old Testament, we can see that this is a, probably a reference to the God Baal-zebub, and he's talked about in 1 Kings chapter 2. If you look there, you'll see a story about King Ahaziah and the prophet Elijah. In that story, King Ahaziah sends messengers to this God Baal-zebub to determine whether or not he is going to die from an injury he's sustained falling out of a window. But basically, if you skip to the end, Elijah tells him he is going to die. And he's going to die because he consults foreign gods. That's why he's going to die. Instead of just inquiring of the God of Israel, he consults foreign gods, Baal's above. So Elijah tells him, you're going to die. The king doesn't want this to be true, but that's exactly what happens. He dies. They have access to the God of Israel, and still they would rather worship anybody but him. They refuse to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, even though he performs all the miracles, the signs, the wonders that the, that the Messiah will perform. Instead, the Pharisees have gotten so frustrated with Jesus that they've just started hit, calling him Satan's servant. In the parallel passage to this passage in Mark 3.29, it reads, Whoever blasphemes against the Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And we'll see this same term, blasphemes the spirit, later on in the passage today, but for now, look at verse 25. Verse 25, he says, Knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. No house divided against itself can stand. In Kentucky, this phrase, a house divided, has all kinds of meaning. I moved here from Kentucky in 2005, and, and one of the first things I saw was these bumper, these license plates that said a house divided and had a UK on one side and a UofL on the other. I admit that when I first moved here, my daughters and my wife were still in California, so what did I do? I sent one of them a bunch of UK stuff and one of them a bunch of UOL stuff, promoting disunity. <laughs> so I sent them all this stuff. You know, this state is a college state, and the rival between UK and UOL is pretty legendary. 
picked up several items from rival teams, sent them to my kids, promoted disunity, didn't really think through any of the potential con consequences, and to be fair, they're not sports fans, so it really just ended up being harmless fun. But Jesus is serious. House divided is not enjoyable. And Jesus says it cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln quotes this in his, his passage while he's seeking a, a seat in the Illinois Republican, Republican State Convention. He says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. He's talking about the slavery issue and he says that we need to decide one way or the other because we cannot come to a consensus and move forward without agreeing. He ends up losing that election because of what he said. But because of what he said, he's elected as our 16th president. Secures the abolition of slavery in 1865. All because he didn't believe the country could exist half slave and half free, and because he's quoting Jesus. Lincoln's point was that in matters of great importance, it's impossible to remain unaffected. You will eventually be moved either all in one direction or all in the other. And your house will collapse if you stay divided. Jesus' point here is he's talking more about hearts than he is houses. Your heart cannot be ruled by Satan and then perform kingdom miracles. It's ridiculous to call him Satan because he's using the kingdom of God and the power of the kingdom of God to heal the people of God. And to make this point, Jesus uses these basic proofs to illustrate his point. Things that you've probably remember from algebra or geometry. If-then statements, right? Conditional statements. And this is what Jesus says in verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. And we could read this as if Satan casts out Satan, then he is divided against himself. There's no reason for Satan to cast out Satan. Satan wouldn't cast out Satan. Satan wants them to be possessed by demons. So it's illogical. Jesus is clearly not Satan. Verse 27, he gives them another example. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. It was pretty well known that the rabbis would cast out demons. So Jesus' question is, well, if you're saying I cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, then who do your people cast them out by? Are you saying that your people cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub? That, again, is illogical. He also goes on to say that they will judge you for what you've said because if you say Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, then you're saying that they are casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And that, friends, does not make sense. In the Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus says, I have seen a certain man of my country whose name was Eleazar releasing people that were demoniac, demoniacal. 
possessed by demons, in the presence of Vespasian and his sons and his captains and the whole multitude of his soldiers. The manner of his cure was this. He put a ring that had a root of one of those sorts mentioned by Solomon to the nostrils of the demon, and it came out. So later on, it says in the Antiquities of the Jews that Eleazar actually put a glass of water off to the side and had the demon knock it over so he could prove to everybody that the demon had been called out. We don't see that in this passage because what we do see is it's obvious he no longer has a demon because the man can see and he has a voice. One of my favorite stories in Act 19, the story of this Jewish exorcist attempting to remove demons from this person and the, the exorcist, these men are known as the sons of Sceva, and the evil spirit answers them while they're trying this incantation by the power of Jesus and Paul to draw out the demons. And this is what the demon says. I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirits jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them so that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. In this case, the Jewish high priest, the sons of Sceva, used Jesus' name and Paul's name to try and exercise a demon, but here, the demons overpowered them, chased them out, and they run out naked and bleeding. They're chased out by a demon who knows Jesus, and has heard of Paul. But he has little respect for itinerant Jewish exorcists. You don't read accounts like that in the Gospels of Jesus being chased out of buildings naked and bleeding by demons. Jesus comes in power, the power of the kingdom of God. It says they held the name of the Lord in high esteem, and in this way the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. People came to faith because invoking the name of the Lord like a magical incantation didn't work. They got sent out into the street, but Jesus delivered. Jesus delivered them. Jesus is where they could put their trust in. Jesus demonstrates his power of demoniacs multiple times, He demonstrates the kingdom of God being inaugurated. He makes it clear that Jesus is defeating Satan through the power of the kingdom of God. And he goes on to give them one last conditional statement in verse 28. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here he makes it obvious If, in fact, these things are happening, then this is why it's happening. I'm driving out demons with the power of God because the kingdom of God is here, which is what he's been saying since he started his earthly ministry. How can someone enter a strong strong man's house, plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Here again, he's explaining what he just explained to them. I'm the stronger man. I am plundering his goods. I have bound the strong man because I am the stronger strong man. This is exactly what Jesus is alluding to. Really not alluding so much as just saying. 
I've bound him, I'm plundering him, and there's nothing he can do about it because I have the power and authority of God. He's the stronger strong man. He's the strongest strong man. The stronger man has bound the strong man. Soon the strong man, our shepherd, is going to lay down his life for his sheep. And even though he has consistently demonstrated the power of God, powerfully, graciously, generously performing miracles for the people of God, the largest block of opposition to all these things comes from the people who are already shepherding the people of God, the Pharisees. Performing all these signs, the blind see, the mute speak, the dead are raised. And yet still, they accuse him of being Satan. What kind of sign do you think they were looking for? Were they looking for a sign at all, you have to wonder? Did they stop looking for signs? Maybe they just stopped waiting and watching and put all their trust and faith in themselves. And that is a warning for us today, my friends. We are called to watchfulness. We have a king who has promised to return. He is returning for his bride. And when he does, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we have to keep that in mind. As we get further away from the cross, it is sometimes attractive to stop waiting and watching. But that is what we're called to do. Because we have a God who is coming back. And when he does all this pain, all this suffering, the pain of broken relationships, broken bodies, flu, the sting of all of our shortcomings will evaporate in the face of a returning king coming for his bride to remake the earth and everything on it. That will be an amazing day and if we don't see it because in our waiting we succumb to death, rest assured you will not grieve the loss of this one bit because you will be glorified because Jesus promises that too. He will preserve you. You will persevere. You will never feel unloved again because he loves you perfectly. Jesus is the rabbi who shows up teaching about forgiveness and love, giving mercy to the woman caught in adultery, being present at Jacob's well with the Samaritan woman, touching and healing the man with leprosy, healing the centurion's servant with just a thought, setting people with demons free, raising Jairus' daughter, raising and Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus. This is not the strong man that many of them want. Usually the world wants a strong man to destroy the weaker man. We want the strong man to destroy his armies and take his castles. That's how we know he's the strong man. When we picture the strong man, we picture these as I mentioned before, superheroes like Thor and the Hulk. We have another strong man, Iron Man, in the Marvel Universe. And, excuse me for just a second. (laughs) 
And Iron Man has a change of heart when one of his own bombs blows up and he has to create an electromagnet to keep shrapnel from shredding his own heart. Prior to that, he's arrogant, a billionaire playboy. After that, he has a heart for other people. (laughs) He's probably the most human, though. His strength comes from his broken body. He had to create something that will keep him alive, but in that, he created it with such magnificent power that it actually powers the Iron Man suit. His superpower arises out of necessity. He basically creates it himself. He creates himself into a god. But you remember in Endgame, if you've seen it, at the Endgame, he is the one that takes the stones from Thanos and saves the world. And how does he save it? By sacrifice. He dies in the end. At the end of the game, Tony Stark understands there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends and brothers. It's a good ending. A lot of people complained about Iron Man dying, but it's a good death. He dies to save other people, sacrifices himself for Peppa. In the scheme of things, his best attribute, the one that saves everyone, is not his strength, it's his sacrifice. His love is what saves the world. And that's a pretty good story. It's funny how we can appreciate this on the big screen. We can applaud that Hollywood figured out that Iron Man sacrificing himself is the only way to save the world. Iron Man must die that they might live. We have a better story. We have a savior that did just that, and he did it before Iron Man. Christ defeated death, paid your debt, declared it finished on the cross. Because Jesus is stronger than Iron Man too. If we keep looking at our passage in verse 30, Jesus basically tells the Pharisees, anyone who is not with me is against me, anyone who does not gather with me scatters. He calls the Pharisees to repentance here. If they're not against, if they're not with him, they're against him. And if they're against Jesus, who comes with the kingdom of God and the power of the kingdom of God, then who are they aligned with? It's not he that is aligned with Satan, it's them. Jesus is gathering while they are scattering. And all these warnings should inspire a lot of fear in them because the Bible says a lot about the accountability of leaders and we see examples throughout of where the leaders went wrong. Aaron's son stricken down by offering strange fire on the altar of God. Even Moses, who was disobedient and didn't speak to the rock but struck it, was kept from entering the promised land because he was supposed to teach the people how to obey. In Exodus 19 it says, you, now, therefore, you, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. But the Pharisees were more interested in their own status and reputation than in building an obedient nation that loves their God. And Jesus gives them another stern warning. In verse 31, he goes on to say, 
Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So we have sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, you'll be forgiven for speaking a word against the Son of Man, Jesus, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And he adds, in this age or the age to come. So, essentially, Jesus is excluding the possibility of forgiveness for these sins. That is why they're called the unpardonable or unforgivable sins. And he says, and if you look, if you asked, when will blasphemy of the Holy Spirit be forgiven? Never. Never, friends. It'll never be forgiven. So this is serious. Because it's so serious, we need to spend a minute looking at it. What is the unforgivable skin? What kind of moral failure can you possibly have that makes you unforgivable to Jesus' grace? His blood. What, where doesn't that work? What didn't Jesus atone for? You might even be asking yourself, have I committed this sin? Or you might be sure that you've committed it. You might worry about it. And this is what R.C. Sproul says. Worrying about whether one has committed the unforgivable sin is one of the clearest evidences that you have not committed this sin. For those committed are so hardened in their hearts that they do not care that they commit it. Blasphemers of the Holy Spirit are so hardened against God that they do not care about sin. So if we are repentant, we can be sure we have not blasphemed the Spirit. Friends, the unforgivable sin is unbelief. And this has been argued about throughout time, across thousands of years. It's been argued between the different tribes and camps. Jesus talks about it, so it must be something. He specifically calls it blasphemy against the Spirit. Generally, there's a couple thoughts about this. One is that Exactly what the Pharisees did. There's two examples in the text today. One, they said that Jesus is demon-possessed. Some people believe that the unpardonable sin is attributing Jesus' miracles to demon possession. The second example from the text is saying that miracles Jesus did is by the power of Satan, which is exactly what the Pharisees did there. They attributed the miracles to the power of Satan. But again, we know that there is no moral failure that the blood of Jesus cannot atone for. So what is the unpardonable sin? Can you sin enough to unsave yourself? Well, no. Jesus is simply just not talking about believers here. He says every sin, including blasphemy, will be forgiven right there. And if we look in 1 Timothy, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
The saint is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Paul, the chief of sinners, gives us hope that all sins can be forgiven because he says that he was once a blasphemer. And we know that he was once a persecutor of Christians, an accuser, accessory to murder, if not murder itself. Yet we know he was forgiven. And he goes on to say in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. No exceptions, no caveats. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and you will be kept. Christ in John 10 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This is Jesus talking about his sheep. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. The Father has plucked you out of your sin, and he is strong enough to keep you. The Son's blood guarantees that you will be kept till the day of the Lord. John 6 says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. In Ephesians 1, it says, In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of your inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Even in Psalm 130, we read verse 3, Lord, if you, keep, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? And this is the message of the gospel. We are all sinful and fallen. It is Christ that makes us righteous through his blood. In his redemption. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus has bound the strong man. Jesus is the stronger strong man. And because of that, you are freed to believe, to obey, to find joy, to be forgiven. And trust that, that if you confess with your mouth that Christ is Forgiveness for you. God's wrath is satisfied and you're a new creation. Jesus' blood is sufficient to atone for every single sin. And because God's grace is sufficient to draw you to him and change your heart towards him, 
It enables you to persevere in faith until he calls you home or until he returns. Can you thwart the will of the shepherd who goes out after his sheep? How far do you have to run, Christian, to outrun God's saving love? The kind of love that sends his son to die for you. A committed, covenantal, eternal love. The Pharisees' rejection of Christ is the irony of the biblical narrative. The Pharisees are working towards holiness and righteousness so that they can come close to God. But the irony, friends, is that God has already come close to them. God is in their midst. They cannot get any closer to him than they are. They don't need to try and get closer because God emptied himself, came to them, and all they need to do is believe what's right in front of them. But still they reject him. And that's the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is rejecting the Holy Spirit even in the midst of the manifestation of the glory of God in his son and in his witnesses. If your heart is so hard that you cannot confess your sins and receive forgiveness from God, trusting in the finished work of Christ, his atoning sacrifice and his resurrection from the dead, then you will die in your sins. The unforgivable sin is unbelief, even in the face of a suffering servant. The revelation of Jesus Christ and God's glory. And I beg you to not live like that. Die to yourselves, confess your sins. He promises to not only save you, but to keep you. He's the stronger, strong man. He is no puny God, friends. Jesus is the better father, the better son, the better husband, the only God. Our God, a saving God. Rest in that, trust in that, stand in that. Find joy in that. Let's pray.